Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. dedicated to Henry Foreman. In the year of the final... Welcome, my friends. Welcome to episode 97 of Agitators Anonymous. I am Alan Averill, the singer in a heavy metal band, trying to make some sense of the things that I do not understand. Yes, indeed. And as I've stated before on the podcast, if you've been listening to the last 90 million episodes, and that is that liberty is the most important word in the English language, and I think that particular word was framed in a very dark context over the last week and even though the context with which I meant it before six nine months or a year ago was a little different I think the basic concept well it still stands but I'm going to get into that I'm going to get into that a little bit of housekeeping first if that's the right word and that is that the um, primordial tour next month starts on the 8th in Bochum in Germany um, Nagelfar have been replaced by Swallow the Sun from Finland and Rome now with an expanded band is opening and that's on the 8th in Bochum in Germany 9th Derby Rock in Belgium 10th Birmingham in England 11th London in the UK 12th Colmar in France 13th Lyon in France 14th is Paris in France 15th is Pratlin in the Czech Republic sorry Switzerland CH that always gets me when I see that written down CH is Switzerland and not Czech Republic. 16th is Mannheim in Germany. 17th is Dark Easter Medal Meeting in Munich. 18th is Eindhoven. 19th is Berlin. 20th is Bremen. 21st is Copenhagen. 22nd is Gothenburg. And 23rd is Stockholm. The Heathen Crusade to Doomsday. Check your socials. Follow me in Nemtianga underscore primordial, primordial underscore official over on Zigram. We will see you over there where we're gathering a small and rather impotent army. Indeed, too early in the morning for the word impotent. Well, so, here we are. This may be one of the most important podcasts, I suppose, that I have ever penned or decided to, you know, take take the bat on and run with. Of course, some of it will be, um, you know, personal insights into the simple fact that I've been in Ukraine and I've been in Russia, I've spent time in both countries and spent time all across Eastern Europe over the last 20, 25 years. And I think that gives me um, a reasonable insight into um, everything from the mindset of the people there, but just to the simple geography and also to some other um, historical um, political context that maybe some people are missing. Of course, lots of people have visited these countries. You might have as well. You might even be living in one of those countries as well. And I will say off the top that I have friends in both Ukraine and Russia. And this is not what either of them want. This is Putin's war. This is not Russia's war. But off the top, as I stated, sovereignty is all and liberty is the most important word in the English language. And I think that that could not be more perfectly framed by the events of the last week. I must admit, I felt a bit daft, a little bit silly, a little bit stupid in not addressing the situation in Ukraine on the last podcast. 
for whatever it's worth and for whatever the explanation is, the podcast is edited and finished usually on Thursday evening and comes out at noon on a Friday. The hurly-burly is done um, and dusted. And after what seems like weeks of football matches in the cold and rain, that's me I'm talking about, last week seemed no different, i.e. it's done and dusted. I go out and kick a leather ball of air around with some other people. It's usually lash and rain. You come home cold and tired and wake up and go, oh, the podcast is coming out in two hours, etc., etc. The rumours of war, um, the rumours of war, um, I felt personally, were inflated. Um, most analysts told us saber rattling by Putin. Um, arms companies were raising the stakes. Most were of the opinion that a full-scale invasion, despite the fact that uh, the U.S. military intelligence were predicting it, most people saw that as um, just, you know, something that Putin would not dare to do. Yes, indeed, this podcast is going to be about the situation in Ukraine. How could it not? And yet most of the analysts, most of the podcasts and most of the political experts who knew way, way, way more than me, um, obviously, or people who've been living in either country for 20, 30 years, this is not what they predicted. A full scale invasion was something beyond the beyond. The skirmishes along the eastern border, uh, many felt, would continue in Donetsk and Donbass region. Um, I'm going to kind of pluck names and dates and a few things out of my head, which is probably, you know, of course, not the wisest thing, but that is the nature of Agitators Anonymous podcast. And like I said, out of the gate, I apologize for anything I might get a little bit wrong. As I said, I'm just a singer in a heavy metal band. And of course, some of the some of my silly wit and I won't call them jokes, but some of my observations will be done in somewhat bad taste, perhaps. Um, but I do understand that um, the analysis that I have to give is, um, you know, it's from a slightly different position. However, we were all taken by surprise. I think everyone was taken by surprise. I mean, like I said, we all figured, okay skirmishes along the eastern border would continue the energy commitments would still be in place i'll get into that they're very important dozens of smug european ex-politicians would still would still sit on boards of russian companies um, and this is something you really should look into is the amount of um, politicians in the last 20 25 years in europe connected to the european union who've just washed their way through the, through the system to end up sitting on boards rewarded for their um, compliance in um, energy deals and all sorts of other deals. Um, rather dark and shadowy stuff, but we'll get into that. As I said, dozens of smug European ex-politicians would sit on boards of Russian companies without any major um, moral conflict, it would seem. London would still be the place where oligarchs washed their money and treated Europe's Davos set to extravagances and largesse. That is the first time I have used the word largesse in the podcast. Um, Dr. Evil Schwab would still be up for that morning. He would still be up that morning watching the servants iron his Dr. Evil outfit, sucking lemons or the blood of small children distilled into life, giving capsules, whatever that may be, whichever you prefer. And the press in the Soviet Union would still peddle Putin's history podcast. And it would, for the most part, be business as usual. It, that's what people thought. And certainly that's kind of what I thought. Um, I sense that straight from the pandemic into this, there's a terrible sense of inertia among many people. They just cannot believe that we go straight from one emergency to the other. There was many, there's a great feeling in society, I think, among an awful lot of people that they just wanted some downtime. But my friends, I just don't think that civilization is going to progress like that from now on. I think that the state of heightened emergency um, is something that benefits, um, whether it's the industrial military industrial complex, whether it benefits the political class who can, you know, usher in new rules and laws and regulations. It benefits, um, it benefits the technocratic urges of the new ruling class, the platforms, the cliques, you know, that the media needs to keep it moving uh, through the news cycle, etc., etc. So I have this terrible feeling that from here on in till your final days, it's going to be a state of constant rolling emergency. So unless you can find a way to move out and head out to that uh, South Pacific island and work, I don't know, um, on a in a tiki bar on a beach somewhere, um, I think you're going to be pretty much subject to this constant rolling state of emergency. 
Anyway, so Thursday night, Friday morning. Um, I have to admit, as I reached for my glasses, yes, indeed, I'm middle-aged. As I reached for the my glasses that Friday morning to check my phone, bleary-eyed and not yet awake or caffeined to the nth degree as I would normally be, um, that Friday morning, the enormity of what was happening hit me. The world, at least as we knew it one day ago, I can say without sounding hyperbolic and over the top, will not be the same as it was. For what it was worth, do I try to cobble together a new podcast, gather my thoughts? Um, I sat and stared outside at the rain, um, which seems to have been pretty permanent here in Dublin the last while. Um, And all my thoughts were just with my friends in in the Ukraine. I spent about 10 days there, maybe um, five or six years ago, and visited all sorts of different places, hung out with all sorts of different people, took really took a, we played a gig there, uh, promoted with Rotting Christ and Blind Guardian, um, a big open air gig in Ukraine, a few thousand people, and soaked up, I think, a pretty good um, sort of cross-section of what is a beautiful country with some amazing people in it. Anyway, and so that was where my thoughts were. Um, I also thought of my friends in Russia um, who will be lining up in the not-in-my-name rank of objectors to such an incredible act of aggression. And let's be clear, the invasion of a sovereign nation for what it was worth once again. Should I re-edit the podcast? Should I try and gather my thoughts? And I thought, really, if I was to try and do that now, there would be a hodgepodge, a mess of all sorts of different things and emotions um, so let's leave the podcast as it was, as, as, as in the end it was the life and times of Countess Bathory, which of course now in, um, you know, in retrospect looks a little bit trite that that would be the podcast I would release, considering that the war in um, the invasion, the war in, and invasion of Ukraine would seem to fit perfectly in the wheelhouse of things the band has been singing about for decades and my own personal interests. So all I can do is hold my hand up. And claim I like, it would seem, most other people, even people who've been living in Russia for decades as foreign journalists, were as surprised as anyone else. Um, so I decided to leave it. Sure, who gives a fuck really what I have to say anyway, right, says you. Well, yes. And no. But mainly yes. Um and so now sitting um, six days later, an awful lot has changed. Even if I'd written or done this podcast three or four days ago, it would have been very different to now. So sitting here now, uh, thinking through all these kind of things, I'm going to try and um, discuss a little bit of what I think the intentions are, what I think might happen, what, how things might play out, some of the backdrops, as I said, military or energy-wise. Also, my experiences in both countries and trying to understand the psyche, especially of Russians and having been in Russia several times um, and try and just put a little bit of a different context on things. I know by now probably you're sick of the 24 news hour news cycle and the sort of regurgitation of um, an awful lot of the same talking points. So let's try and make it a little bit different and hopefully not do some form of disservice to to what is one of the, it would seem, um, greatest human catastrophes or disasters unfolding right before our eyes of current times with incredibly complex and dark potentialities. I am, of course, talking about the nuclear threat, and that is the dimension to all of this that changes everything, whether anybody likes it or not. So let's get into all these kind of things. It'll be a few personal stories, a few this and a few that. So I'm Alan Averill, Agitators Anonymous, episode 97. Let's have a look at it. Well, sitting here now thinking about this, it's clear that Putin by now would have hoped his blitzkrieg, and let's call that more or less what it was, would have achieved its goals. But as of Thursday, writing um, this or thinking about this, going through my thoughts, this has not come to fruition. The Ukrainians, all 45 million of them, And let's not forget how massive this country is are not going to go quietly into the night, nor welcome the Russian troops with garlands, as no doubt some of the older generation of Russians who believe in the state propaganda might have thought, and maybe even Putin had thought, um, as Putin himself called the Ukrainian government genocidal neo-Nazis. And I'm also going to try and tackle that in a little while. All the while, I suppose, the European media that night 
was busy up making a few cartoons for the opening pages and they were um, placing that little famous uh, Hitler-esque moustache on our boy Putin. Um, I think in reality they may as well have used Uncle Joe's. They could have had his more bushy variant instead as this was right out of his playbook as well but we won't quibble about moustaches seeing as the Adolf is the common go-to when it comes to the moustache wars. Um, But what Putin was doing was straight out of either one of those despicable tyrants' playbook. But the footage, the footage was shocking. The implications, immense. It made, at least to me, the end game, and I'm going to call it pantomime of the pandemic, seem like the Pfizer puppet show that it was. And the sight of people wearing masks on the streets of Dublin that morning while their umbrellas buckled and snapped with the wind, um, it seemed even more moronic than usual when you knew that missiles were raining down on uh, Ukraine. It brought into stark contrast the imbecilic nature of some of the West's political decision-making and cultural obsessions over the last 20, even 30 years, but specifically some of them the last 10, into a very different light. This was something out of an older political playbook. Um, And, you know, Putin had been the head of the USSR 23 years. He has been the head. Before that, he was head boy in the KGB. Once KGB, always KGB. He always had time on his hands, while the West... Well, the West, we're stuck in election cycles of ever-decreasing circles as the nature of instant social media um, and the Twitterati forced our politicians to pivot from day to day, always on the make, always on the take, always on the election cycle, worried that saying one little wrong thing might have them lose their jobs um, and also believing their own, let's call it blue sky propaganda over the last 10, 20 years, 20, I would say, that bringing Putin and his people closer to their idea of democracy and globalism and capitalism would rub off on him. Well, how would he not want to be part of that group? Well, the fact is Putin never really did, as far as I can see. The fact is that Putin considers the breakup of the USSR as the greatest political tragedy in modern history. He's told us this. Any idea that he, wanted to, that he wanted to import our vision of Western democracy, I think, was a chimera, a bit of a lie. He never had any intention of doing so. And it places the oddly 90s sort of Blairite third way, yet vaguely colonial export of democracy, um, you know, multinational capitalism with a smile to the world seem about as dated as Britpop. Um, cozy all you want up to an oligarch under the rubric of EU equity if you want, but they, under the schmoozing and glad handling, and as I said, largesse, they knew Putin always wanted to get the band back together, and it was only a matter of time before he started putting those wheels in motion. And I mean, in fairness, um, he had been warning of this for decades, and we, it would seem, didn't really quite believe him, or half believed him. Anyway, so no doubt many of you are worn out with political analysts, images of maps, local phone, um, local phone-in shows with human interest stories, dark as they are, as the media tries to find that moment of maximum emotional duress to get the most out of the news cycle. So what I'm going to try and do is give my impression of both countries a little bit, try and frame them um, in a slightly different way. Well, I suppose the style of what Agitators is Anonymous is about um, against what I saw, observed and understood about each nation. But first, I'll tell a second-hand story, um, and I hope that I may be allowed to do so. But a friend of mine, who shall remain nameless, was working for an unnamed Swedish heavy metal band. I think you can work out who, if you just consider who headlined Vakken a few years ago, and who brings a tank on stage, indeed. Um, Silly outfits and worse songs. But anyway... Apologies if the odd thing within this story is incorrect, but I think it stands up and um, I will sort of use it as an illustration. It's a secondhand story, so take it with that, well, whatever that needs to be taken. Um, Every year on Russian TV, they do a full-scale 
reenactment of the Battle of Stalingrad, complete with tanks and soldiers and bomb streets in front of an audience of millions. Um, and that year, said metal band were invited to perform. And said friend told me that above the stage were several lights, each illuminating a different region. And several were slightly less illuminated, let's say sitting at level orange between yellow and red. Red being, red being part of the Soviet Union, part of Russia, part of um, Putin's plan. Said friend, said friend was being shown around by one of Putin's biker gang who had just shot to fame um, kind of before that in the media for appearing to be kind of like a real life patriotic Russian sons of anarchy, riding into villages, kicking ass and taking names. He asked about the lights above the stage. Ah, oh, well, that one is Crimea. And I think at that stage, Crimea was orange and going red. Yeah, that's Georgia. That's whatever. Um, this one, well, well, that one is for Ukraine. That light is not on full power yet, but it will be soon, he laughed and told my friend. Mark my words, mark my words, as long as Putin's alive, as in Ukraine belongs to Russia. And for Putin and his ilk, that was always their truth. Um, and anyone who paid attention to... Putin's astounding speech prior to the invasion, he more or less stated that the Ukraine did not exist, did not have a right to exist. The message is clear and has been clear for 20 odd years or more. Putin is a man on what we could consider a spiritual mission, if that is the right word. He wishes to write his name in the history of the next century. Now, how unhinged he has become is up for discussion. And certainly the names of the leaders of the past, such as Lenin, who he blamed for their historical mistakes over granting Ukraine legitimacy, are all part of the cogs in a machine he wishes to replace many of the parts and send back in time, which is a frightening prospect. The first time, the first time I was in Moscow, I was standing on a bridge watching a march in the distance. Banners, flags, plenty of sloganeering and shouting as it approaches. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to Moscow, but it's, a, it's a, an incredible place. It's 20 odd million people, um, a bit, somehow a bit like L.A., it just with a completely different filter on it. Um, you see incredible poverty and incredible riches from one street to the next. Um, you see um, homeless people everywhere, whereas Moscow seems to have sort of a filter of grey through it um, in the same way that Los Angeles does have this sort of yellow, I suppose, yellow-orange sepia tone. They're very similar kind of crazy, chaotic, huge, huge cities. That is, being somebody from a city of one million people, which is pretty large, you can feel dwarfed in. It's a city that you feel you could easily disappear in. It could swallow you up and no one would ever find you um, and maybe maybe that's just the feeling people who come from smaller places have when they're in some some vast vast structure but it is an utterly fascinating place but I was stood at the side of the road in the freezing cold sleeting sideways gray gloom um, which is my um, you know which is my memory of Moscow I'm sad to say as many people sometimes come to Ireland for a weekend and go like Jesus Christ does it rain all the fucking time yeah, look, that's your memory. It just happens to be tinged with green and a little bit of blue here and there. But Moscow certainly isn't tinged with green. It's tinged with grey. Um, and so sideways, gloom, grey, sleet. I watched as this um, protest, well, I don't really call it a protest, more of a march, uh, wound its way slowly along the road. The traffic zipped around them in a dangerous way. Um, that only really comes from huge cities where people kind of don't really seem to care about um, the rules of the road, whatever they, whatever they may be. And there's a sort of dangerous, reckless air to everything. But the traffic zipped around and most people ignored them. In fact, it seemed like the only person who could see them was me. Uh, maybe that's true. Uh, Moscow is, a, as I said, a kind of daunting place. You feel very easy. You could disappear in there no one would ever notice but within this march there were old babushkas old women old women old men dressed up to the nines in their military outfits medals polished and glistening oddly incongruous against the grayness of the endless tower blocks framing them from the other side of the road they were lamenting the dissolution of the old ussr they were patriots they were Russian nationalists singing songs from another century, war heroes and their womenfolk cursing the way their country um, 
had become. They longed for the older age of Soviet power, of Soviet muscle, when they wielded influence, major players on the world stage. Um, they no doubt shared, I think, plenty um, with our boy Putin's views of the collapse of the Soviet Union. And I watched as they slowly traipsed by singing um, songs and then they gathered in a small square. One of them spoke to the rest and they applauded and, um, you know, it wasn't a huge crowd of people, but it was very interesting to observe their flags and patronage and how old all of these people were. They seemed to be all between 60 and, well, mid-80s, I would say, braving the frozen elements. So sitting in a bar later on with one, one of my Russian friends, um, we, I mulled over what it meant with him, Sergei, good guy, begins to tell us crazy stories about the collapse of communism, about the lawless, reckless days that followed, how criminals began to steal the country's assets, many of whom now cozy up to our EU politicians, um, how criminals began to steal the country's assets, how law and order collapsed, how dangerous it was. And how a huge percentage of the country was plunged into even greater poverty. Their way of life, the small stability that the communist system granted them, utterly destroyed as the forces of violent and rampant, um, let's, you know, maybe not let's call it capitalism, but I don't not sure we could call it maybe disaster capitalism, perhaps. But the forces of whatever that was rushed in to fill the vacuum, set about turning the country on its head, and a very small percentage of people got very, very, very rich, while the majority of Russians got poor and lost their savings and had no security. And I think that's something you have to kind of understand about the backdrop of some of what's happening now. Um, and I think it's important to try and understand this. But the West has tried, in my opinion, for decades to deconstruct European nationalism, to separate people from their past, to make, the, to make them citizens of the world. Um, you know, you can disagree, that's okay, but give up on their ideas of flag and nation. Um, in the World Economic Forum's own promo video, they state Europe will have its cultural values challenged, as if we need this stain of nation erased from our soul. In this new global village, why would you need to feel Catalan or Flemish or Bavarian or from Leinster or from Munster? Um, no need to, right? Yeah, you don't need to. You're, you're a citizen of nowhere. A digital citizen of nowhere. Of course, in my opinion, that makes you easier to rule um, with their form of digital technocracy, I would suggest. But we've been through that on some of the other podcasts. Rootless digital nomads encouraged to consume from within their four walls and hand over their history to be written and discarded. However, not in Russia. So for a long time, the West, I sense, has believed Putin was along for some of that ride. Just another arm of the globalist vision of a one world technocracy. But let's be clear, the West made, I think, in well, in my opinion, a miscalculation. He doesn't believe in this agenda. He wasn't following the script. He was busy writing his own, biding his time. Um, for many older Russians, and Putin is 70, the collapse of the Soviet Union was a deep embarrassment, becoming a laughing stock. This hurt the psyche, hurt the soul greater than many people could imagine. Such a fall from grace. This is steeped in a form of old world patriotism that I think many modern uh, gen EU European politicians and their class never really understood, at least my view of it. It may sound trite, but when I was in Russia, I got a very strong sense of an old empire in permanent decline, falling apart at the seams, torn between trying to come to terms with this new world of capitalism um, or whatever you would wish to call it and the collapse of all of their old systems and the stark realization that their leverage and power on the world stage was eclipsed. And so Putin, since then, has been set on restoring this, but also restoring what he considers pride. And these are things that maybe we need to place in context when trying to understand, of course, not justification, but at least to understand some of the backdrop of the last 10, 20, 30 years since the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, and an attempt to understand a part of the mindset of Vlad. And let's be clear, as I said before, this is Putin's war, not Russia's war. Your average Russian does not want this. All my Russian friends, this is not. They do not want this. Now, there are, of course, other things to consider. Very, very important things. And let's consider this. If you're Irish, this should resonate with you. In 1932, Ukrainians experienced a famine of such dark proportions 
on one that should be resonant in the collective memory of most of Europe, but often gets forgotten, the Holodomor or Holodomor. Okay, it sounds like something from Game of Thrones, but Stalin basically encircled the country and forced starvation as genocide. Some of the stories coming out of this history are beyond dark. Um, And some estimates put the death toll at well over five or six million people. Um, Not to mention, of course, you know, uh, the, the casualties in the Second World War. Ukraine's history is steeped in tragedy and steeped in blood. It's steeped in so many dark things. But this particular thing, and, and I had a famine again, as I can see, in 1941, which killed in further one over one million people. And this seems, well, an enforced famine as genocide. Um, this is Ukraine's history. How could the people of that country wish to be ruled over by the country or its rulers um, that perpetrated in their eyes and their souls such an act? Of course, they could not. So to put that in context for people listening in Ireland or just apply whatever tragedy exists within the history of your own country. We have our own famine history in here in Ireland where 87 years previous to the Ukrainian famine in 1845, almost two million people died and I think a million and a half emigrated. Um, So for some kind of context um, for Irish people, simply imagine that um, that Boris Uh, Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister of England, that Boris massed 50,000 troops on the border of Northern Ireland and Ireland decided to invade. Um, And first he started bombing Dundalk, Athlone, Limerick, Galway, stating simply that there was a genocide happening in the border countries of Protestants and his intention was to defend them. And secondly, his intention was to recreate the British Empire, starting right here today. No one really believed him that he would do it. And after a day or two, someone in the streets of Dublin or Cork pulls up in a van to hand you a rifle and prepare and prepare as we sent the women and children off in ferries to France or wherever and this morning outside we were huddled in the park around the corner making Molotov cocktails of course the context is a bit different the dates are not the same but there is a form of context here there is a form of historical context here and this is what people um, I know in Ukraine are being asked to do um, literally send the women and children away this is how you make a Molotov cocktail and here's a rifle. So, you know, of course, we have to be cognizant of what we do take in from our own media and what side they have picked, etc., etc., etc. as well. But speaking to people within the Ukraine and within Russia, I'm, I'm getting my, their, my own um, videos, my own images, my own firsthand stories of these things. So maybe can put a greater context onto those. But that's the context. Imagine that. In Ireland, you're like, right, here we are now around the corner in Stevens Green learning how to uh, make Molotov cocktails. Um, There are, of course, the historical truths that the modern political class would really like us to not remember as they stand in the way of, um, I would say, the progress of their one world ideal. But those are as in history. You know, if you can own the narrative of history, then I think you own the narrative of uh, the future. Oh, oh, listen, I butchered that in a sort of um, sorry or well, <laughs> I butchered your quote. Um, but these are scars that don't really heal. And yet when I was in Ukraine, I saw these scars. They were deep into people, deep in society. And having traveled extensively throughout Eastern Europe, the scars of communism run very deep. Apologies to any Portlandian black metal bands crusading under the hammer and sickle, but you may have to cover your ears. Um You know, and as an aside, some of the modern lefts take on Putin as being a white supremacist and that he's a darling of the right, of the far right. Really, he's he's um, he's old KGB. He's surely one of your old boys, is he not? But for most of the for most of Europe, the Second World War ended in 1945. But behind the Iron Curtain, a new system of repression and oppression was enforced Um, for another 50 years, um, well, 45 years. I mean, it doesn't really need me to explain the Cold War right here. If you don't know the history, do a little digging and maybe ask a genuine Eastern European how they feel about you, like literally, like totally being a communist or whatever. Yeah, that was a bit unbecoming, wasn't it? But you understand my point. But what's clear is that Putin's actions have started a new form of Cold War. How big is the nuclear component to all of this? Well, God damn it, it's huge. Let's be honest. 
a few observations on that. As someone who has stood 50 meters from Reactor 4 in Chernobyl, I kid you not, I went and visited Chernobyl. There is a whole podcast, maybe 30 or 40 episodes devoted to it back, which has videos of um, myself being there. Go and take a look, you know. And it said, you know, that if the rods met the water table, it would have caused an explosion many times that of Hiroshima. The nukes, they never went away, my friends, you know. And Ukraine has, I think off the top of my head, 13 nuclear power plants. Now, can one imagine a direct hit on one of those? And that's before I've even got to the threat of nuclear weapons. Um, And also, Ukraine was convinced after the Cold War ended to give up its nuclear arms, persuaded by the US and Europe um, that we have your back. We've got your back, guys. But of course, then we wouldn't allow them to join NATO, but yet buffered NATO Um, You know, many, many countries joining NATO right up to the Russian borders, which, of course, they saw as um, provocation. Um, But the geography of Ukraine places it in this buffer zone between Russia and Europe. You could say the people of Ukraine were hoodwinked into giving up their security um, because that is what, sadly, nuclear, nuclear weapons are. But in the back of any intelligent geopolitical analyst's brain of the time must have been the concern that this may come back to haunt them. No doubt they were shushed and ushered from the back of the benches and told to take a time out. And here we are. Could Putin actually use a nuclear weapon? Well, of course, it's possible. The disaster that this would represent for the world is beyond comprehension. But the longer this conflict goes on, I sense the greater the possibility increases. It's still hard to believe he might consider it as there's no doubt he wants to inherit what he believes is a Soviet spiritual homeland and not lay claim to a nuclear wasteland. But maybe he is just mad enough if he is backed into a corner. As you have to imagine, the longer the conflict goes on, the greater it looks like his blitzkrieg plan is not working and his soldiers will get bogged down in some form of proxy guerrilla war. He doesn't want that, so the temptation to bring out the big guns must be strong. However, the longer this goes on, And if he does not win quickly, you must consider this would be the end of his regime. It's very hard to consider what his strategy is. How do you hold a country of 45 million people in place with, I think it's 150,000 soldiers, so vast, um, hold them in place and hope the news cycle moves on. The West and the rest of the world shrug its shoulders and goes, oh, well, move along here. Uh, Monster energy variant next or whatever else it is. Um, It feels like a huge miscalculation. How does he manage to do this? And you would imagine there are people around him privately who have grave misgivings about where he is taking the country, especially as sanctions, freezing of assets and money um, for energy may come into effect. There must be people around him wondering, is World War Three worth the price to pay here? But over the last few decades, it would seem that Putin has gotten rid of most of the people who were of um, who were, had enough standing to be able to um, question him. And I think that Like I said, the podcast is going to be maybe a little bit longer than normal as waiting another week to do another second part of this. um, Who knows what might have happened in that time. And another great component of this is energy. Energy. Last year, 50 percent. Last year, uh, blah, blah, blah. Last year, 56 percent of Germany's natural gas energy came from Russia, if I'm not mistaken. For decades now, Europe has been weaning itself off its dependency on nuclear power, shutting down nuclear power plants. The Fukushima power plant disaster in Japan would appear to have been the moral imperative Europe and the West needed to try and pursue a form of new energy agenda. Gazprom, the main energy supplier, drew up the contracts. The Nord Sea pipeline was created. EU politicians smiled and cut the ribbon. And Glenn, again, believing... I think that global enterprise was bringing those curt Russians in from the cold um, to take part in their, as I said, multinational largesse. Third time. But maybe this was part of Putin's long call or long game all along. Create European energy dependency and the ability to pull the lever anytime you feel like it. And therefore, you can act with impunity because you have won over you know, as in not one over, but you have, you can hold this over uh, Europe. Um, And it would appear this is happening. Certainly, um, Putin looked at the West's reaction to his invasion of Crimea, for example, 
um, or Chechnya or Georgia, whatever else, and kind of thought, well, how, what are they really going to do, seeing as I hold that card? But now it seems like that um, pipeline is going to be shut down and the money which was filling the coffers of Putin's war machine may be also halted. Um, certainly it feels like Putin played, he played a hand if you consider these things in terms of dependency. I think there's something also we should address because I've seen a, quite a few people posting this. Um, one is kind of about the whataboutery of why don't you care more about this than that other thing? But also, um, and this, you know, is a pretty difficult issue, but I think we should um, be real about some of the accusations that Ukraine is full of Nazis. Now, of course, anyone who hasn't been living under a rock for the last decade will know this word gets used to more or less describe anyone that someone may disagree with these days. In fact, it's lost nearly a lot of its meaning, if you ask me. Stand up for science or biology or even freedom of speech or civil liberties, and there's now no doubt that someone some more will call you a Nazi. Now, of course, there are actual Nazis. Nobody disputes that. But the overuse of the word is just quite incredible. I think it just doesn't really have any, um, the po any power or resonance anymore. Of course... The echoes of Putin using it are different. Russia threw men at World War II. It's estimated 27 million. Let that sink in. 27 million casualties in World War II. It's incomprehensible. An, an astounding number. So when Putin draws on this word, it has a terrible resonance for Russian society. It's just, of course, inherently odd to hear him use it when we are so used to hearing it used in terms of a Twitter argument in 2022. But to make something clear, there are no, there are no doubt far-right elements within the Ukrainian military, politics and society, just as there are in actuality in all countries. But the political parties, it would seem, uh, when they bandied together, um, got less than 2% of the vote last time in Ukraine, which makes them, it would seem, even less prevalent than most, if not all, countries within Europe. Um, yes, you can find images of soldiers with right-wing flags, but I'm quite sure you could probably find images like this for the army of almost every country. Um, so the claim that Putin is denazifying Ukraine is patently untrue. So if you've swallowed that narrative, I would kind of maybe consider some of the history. As are the claims mainly by left-wing American YouTubers who don't seem to understand much about history that Ukraine is full of Nazis. And of course, and I quote, the kind of why are we defending them? And of course, the claim, the claim by far-left YouTubers that the right across Europe supports Putin, which is a crazy concept. They don't. He's an OG. He's an OG communist, head of the former head of the KGB, um, former member of the Communist Party, of course. This is, you know, this is, um, this is Soviet history. Sure, we can argue what that means. And I know that people will basically, you know, frame any act of aggression in those terms. But I would definitely accept the notion that Putin now sees himself as more of um, an emperor than anything else. It's really, really strange. Um, it makes me, in theory, think of him more like a Romanov czar um, mixed with classical, classical dictator uh, syndrome, anything else. I just thought it was worth addressing. Um, and the fact that is Ukraine is not full of Nazis. Um, because I think that's been doing the rounds on lots of, um, you know, those kind of short little silly, um, I suppose, Instagram videos and all that kind of thing. I think there's also another um, difficult thing to um, consider, a difficult thing to get into, and that's mentioning the kind of whataboutery. And that's something I've been accused of before and that I didn't really understand the meaning of, but I do. I get it. It's the what about this? What about that? Um, like, why, why do you care about this more than that? That's... Um, all over the internet at the moment. Um, for example, and, and I'll try and get into why that may be um, and why that happens. Whether you agree with it or not, as in the principles of why these things happen, um, they just they just do. I think it's inherent in human nature to make some of these um, distinctions and choices. And there isn't really much you can do with that. But I think it's worth addressing um, uh, some of the whataboutery. Why, for example, are some people reacting differently to Ukraine than, for example, any other number of crises over the last decade, um, with activists trying to frame things in a very simple binary choice? Um, 
as with most things. Um, and I think trying to frame things in a form, form of a racial context as well. Um, but I'll say when I studied journalism, one of the first things we learned was that the devil was local. And quite simply, there are many things that are factors in why one story moves people and gains traction and another doesn't quite get the same um, attention. Some are simple, geography, uh, proximity, language, even just the timing in the news cycle. And then they get progressively more complex, religion, ethnicity, and yes, indeed, race, I guess, also is part of it. Point is, there are many, many things within the sphere as why, um, within the, the narrative or the debate as to why some things gain more traction in the news cycle. Um, of course, as things, you know, the, it's also to do with media ownership. It's also to do with other things now like clicks and that kind of stuff. But inherently within people, there's a reason why they react to things. And so trying to boil this down to some binary good and evil choice, I think, is uh, incorrect. And as I said before, um, earlier in the podcast, uh, the idea that we are the notion that we're all blank slate citizens of nowhere or something certain talking heads on the situation, I think would like us to be. Um, but we aren't. We are moved by different things. And to not acknowledge that is, I think, intellectually dishonest. The West is more invested in this crisis as this is in the West. This is the West. Two world wars fought in the last 100 years um, by the main players in the West are involved here right now. A huge portion of Eastern Europe lived behind the Iron Curtain for 50 years um, afterwards under the Iron Heel of oppression. Um, the whole world lived through the Cold War, you know, and its danger and of course no problem, but its icy heart was right where the conflict's flashpoints are right now. There are fears of a new Cold War and there are nuclear weapons involved and that is the deciding factor which make this conflict's potential for catastrophe dwarf all others. So if you're one of those people who have been carried away with the kind of whataboutery, um, why didn't you care more about X crisis or X country um, and inferring, for example, racism as, as the disease, um, I think this is a rather simplistic analysis of the situation. There is, of course, some truth, no doubt, to it. But um, the situation in Yemen is indeed, for example, terrible and not to belittle any form of human suffering, but wondering why Poles care more about Ukraine than Yemen. Well, you know the answer to that. And I think to pretend not to consider all of those different things is, is dishonest, really. It's intellectually dishonest. And I think the gravitas of the current situation, which could take us all the way back, for example, to the Cuban Missile Crisis, um, this is this is the tipping point in in terms of attention and eyes on this story. Um, but of course, um, I understand. I understand any form of human suffering. Um, it's not to belittle anything, any of those things. Um, and let's be clear: talking to some of my friends in Russia now, um, there are huge crackdowns happening. You can be detained for posting and spreading what the state consider misinformation. Um, you've seen footage of children in the back of cop cars having been arrested, which a friend of mine confirmed as being, yeah, this is true. And a friend from Russia, inside Russia, has told me, uh, yeah, this is true. Um, I, of course, you see people questioning it, etc. But strict new laws are being introduced each day and the military police are on the streets. Russia is completely isolating itself as its economy free falls. So it's clear, as I said, Putin has not achieved his military objective of rolling across the country in a weekend. The worry now is clearly that he is unhinged enraged and will basically start to demolish Ukraine, level its cities and attack as it um, level its cities and attacks it seems to be already doing in residential, certain residential areas and it does not get his way. Then Ukrainians will dig in for the long haul. Um, the people, you know, what the people are offering is Molotov cocktails to the invaders and not flowers to the liberators, as it seems somehow Putin had hoped, which you, it, it seems crazy, really. Um, but how real was that wish is hard to say. As I said, it seems like he systematically got rid of anyone around him who was more powerful enough to question him or, uh, you know, powerful enough to question him. And so he seems to cut a more and more isolated figure. Um, and this, of course, brings the real threat to the surface. How crazy is he that he may just press that button and bring a nuclear threat to bear in Ukraine? I think spiritually wants to, as I said, inherit the promised land of the Russians to his legacy and to his bosom rather than a nuclear wasteland. But the balancing act is now unhinged. How unhinged is he really? This is the great risk.
This is the great risk. Um, I mean, personally, I doubt we'll see a direct confrontation between US forces and Russians. I mean, that is unthinkable. But some form of proxy war, um, I would find it hard to even see a confrontation with NATO forces. But one step into Poland and we are looking at a huge escalation. So is Putin mad enough to engage in that? I don't know. Very difficult to say. Um, More grim food for thought. I mean, I do think, as I said about um, the energy angle, we also have to take a moment to assess the warmongering that happened previous to the invasion. You would have probably witnessed this on American TV a little bit more. But um, many of these analysts have their fingers in a few um, military-industrial complex pies. We have to consider that arms manufacturers are going to make and this is a pun intended, a killing financially on this. And of course, you would probably wonder, surely they can't want a nuclear war and that kind of escalation. I would imagine not. But even they play the game of brinksmanship and financial gain right up to that moment. War is good for them, plain and simple. And you have to remember that also. And I think also we must consider the um, movements of China in relation to Taiwan. Because if this is um, Putin's engagement. China will be watching to see how things go. I think it is clear to it's, you know, it's easy to imagine that because they made no secret of their desires to annex Taiwan as well. So perhaps the pair of those great um, old uh, powers were watching for the West's reaction, assessing the West's decline. And for now, we've seen quite a united reaction from the West and the world to condemn what's happening. So that sort of brings me to the end of the podcast. There's some things in there you'll probably disagree with. Some of my jokes didn't land. Boom. Um, Anyway, Uh, but I think what's very important is that um, knowing people within Russia, knowing people within Ukraine, um, that no one wanted this. And for sure, uh, the world that we knew the day before the oldest started is a very different world to now and from now on in. History is going to change quite dramatically. And this could be one of the most pivotal moments that we're all living through. In, and it is, I understand it's almost bewildering because it seems like we just lived through two uh, bewildering years with the pandemic. But I think that we are going to have to get used to the way this the ride is going to be now from now on. And it's going to be bumpy. It's going to be constant emergency. And so you're going to have to try and find a way of dealing with that and hope the emergency doesn't land on your doorstep as it did for the people of Ukraine. So, like I said at the start, um, liberty is the most important word in the English language and sovereignty is um, paramount. And so on those terms, my thoughts go to the people of Ukraine and we can only hope for some form of peaceful resolution, although I fear that that is going to be impossible. Um, So, my friends, episode 97 of Agitators Anonymous is a dark one, a dark one indeed. These are dark days, but here we are. Agitators Anonymous, I'm Alan Averill, over and out. Stay safe out there. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.